Let me tell you, when I got my first Grub Rescue screen, that was a very interesting experience, <laughs> and it was not a happy one. There, there are some devices that I've had where using Grub Rescue was an active part of the initial setup process. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. Live from the backup studio, I'm Joe. Hi, this is Tony, and I'm singing like a swan. I'm Norbert, and I have created Frankenstein's monster. And I'm Josh, Slayer of the Mighty Chicken of Bristol. This is episode 375.5, recorded on Sunday the 28th November. Live stream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at midcast at midcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Midcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram or Discord or Facebook or post directly midcast.org. In our innards section, we're going to be talking about fragmentation in Linux. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. Here for the Linux innards, we're trying out something a little different in the way that uh, we discussed this. It's going to be a lot less linear than normal and hopefully more of a free-flowing discussion. And our discussion topic is going to be fragmentation. Is the increasing number of distros and DEs good or bad? And hopefully we can make this last 30 to 45 minutes and keep Tony on as long as possible. He can sleep next week. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> now, uh, I'm just going to kick off the conversation a little bit here and say that the fragmentation of distros and the new distros and desktop environments, all of that is inevitable. In an open source environment, you're always going to have people with different ideas or people that disagree or people that simply want things their own way or simply want the experience of creating their own distro and desktop environment and letting it run. So inevitably, somebody's going to grab this open source code that they're allowed to do, make the changes that they want and redistribute it. And then a lot of times it's either going to come out really well or it's not. And in most cases, it's not, obviously. And then in most cases, even if it does come out well, unless that person can get more people on board in a year, three years, whatever, it's going to die because no more updates unless somebody takes it over. Yeah, I, I was, you know, one of the things I thought when I, when I saw the title of this was uh, it's just one of the benefits and one of the drawbacks of a free and open culture in Linux. I, as you say, Joe, you know, people uh, create a Linux distribution to scratch your own itch. And some of the most loved distributions over the years have started that way uh, because someone wants to scratch an itch and uh, they create their own you know, their own version of Linux the way they like it. And maybe they'll bung an ISO out on the internet and say, give it a try, see what you think. Uh, and some of them even survive longer, you know, after the original creator moves on. Some of them, one of, one of the ones I can think of particularly, because I know the creator of it, Phil Nubra, and that was Crunchbank. 
Phil created Crunchbang because he wanted to create a Debian-based um, system that he, um, you know, that worked for him, and he did it. And you know, he he put the ISO up, and people liked it. So for a while, he carried on developing it, and then you know, life took over, and he had to move on. But other people in the community decided to pick it up and run with it and and it lives on in a, in a couple of other distributions one of them's crunchbang plus plus and there's a couple of others that are based on it so you know that is one of the things that uh, linux is all about as far as i'm concerned is is that choice and that freedom to be able to do that kind of stuff yeah it's really not unlike solus is it with ike and his situation where he started that and then eventually stepped away from the project and that got picked up as well yeah yeah i want to give a shout out to bunsen labs linux which is another successor to crunchbang and it also uses openbox yeah and i think it's one of the most polished uh, debian based distributions but this brings us to the question of independent distributions and those that are based on other distributions because I think the number of derivative distributions increasing doesn't necessarily hurt the platform as much. I think there are around 10 or so major uh, independent distributions that I like to sort of call the big 10, so to speak, uh, which are Debian, Arch, Fedora, OpenSUSE, Gentoo, Solus, Slackware, Void, NixOS, and Alpine. I'm not sure if Alpine fits this, uh, but I think uh, I looked at the Google Trend searches and it's uh, pretty high up there. And not all of these are widely used on the desktop, but around half of them are. And I think this number of uh, major independent distributions is somewhere around just the right number. And I would also argue that Ubuntu could be in this list as well, because it doesn't directly use Debian repositories, they have their own repos. Because the initial idea with Ubuntu was to take packages from the unstable or testing Debian repos and maintain them for Ubuntu. And then, of course, there are distros that are forks of some other distro that hasn't been around for a while. For example, OpenSUSE and uh, Fedora were both uh, forks of uh, the original Red Hat distribution. And I did use the phrase platform to describe Linux, but I recently came across an argument, which is interesting, that Linux isn't a platform because there isn't a unified way to develop applications. Like, for example, there is on iOS or Android or macOS. Uh, this was from the Linux experiment, and Nick said that uh, that even though GNOME is restricting customization, that it's actually bringing it closer to be a platform, and developers would benefit from that. Well, why wouldn't it be considered a platform? Because it's not standardized? Yeah, time and time again, I would download an application, and it would be using, uh, and it's using Qt, which uh, don't tend to look good on a GTK system. Well, I think that's one of the few parts of fragmentation that are bad. You know, you don't you don't always get a first class uh, experience when you're using a different toolkit across platform, the non native toolkit for that underlying OS. So, if there is a disadvantage, that's probably one of them. When I tried downloading uh, Transmission, which is the BitTorrent client. I found different packages in Debian for transmission-gtk and transmission-qt. So you have the option to download a GTK-based or a Qt-based version of the application, which I think is fantastic, but but it's not really a solution because that just gives more work for developers to do. In some ways, you could probably think of distributions or the Linux ecosystem around the application manager. So you've got apt, RPM and the Arch, the AUR, and things like that. 
and most people stick to one of those choice you know one of those choices for their main system so i got into linux through ubuntu so most of the uh, more more usable distributions for me are based on apt but i have played around with rpm and you know the the other systems but very you know i ke- i keep coming back to app based systems because uh, uh, dev-based systems, because that's that's what works for me. Yeah, likewise. That's where I started as well, Tony, was in Ubuntu, and I've always come back to Debian. I, I'll go out and play around and try others, but uh, yeah, the app-based system, yeah, it's just where uh, where I feel comfortable. Maybe I'm also coming back to Arch because I started on Manjaro. That could be. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of people... Uh, you know, they like to say that fragmentation's this huge problem, right? We just have this massive problem. But I think it's mostly within the Linux community that we discuss this and we see it as the problem. I don't know if this is such a big deal to people externally. You know, I I don't know. Maybe on the enterprise side. I would say that there is a small problem, and just with desktop users, people transitioning from Windows to Linux, and I've even included this in my notes, uh, it can be somewhat daunting for a new user to, you know, say, okay, I want to get rid of Windows, I heard about this Linux, I'm going to go look and see, Uh, well, there's a hundred something distros, which one do I pick, which one's best for me? The first one that comes up on Google in my case. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, and nine times in ten, uh, that's going to be Ubuntu, yes. Yeah. But um, yeah, it could potentially be daunting. And there's a lot of other podcasters that say that that's the issue with fragmentation, is that there's too much choice for new users, somebody that knows absolutely nothing about Linux in general. But I think you're going to end up with the most popular ones solving that particular problem. But my counter-argument to that would be that the majority of people who go looking for Linux on their own are usually a little bit more tech-savvy. If it's your granddad or your grandma or your you know your uncle Fred and he ask, he knows you're the techie in the family and he comes and asks you, you're going to tell him something that's the easiest thing to transition. You 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 know, but if it's someone who's coming from Windows who's say a Windows power user, they're going to know where to find information about the best transition from Windows to Linux. So. I don't see it as a major issue in that respect. And I think you're going to find more of that like in, in forums was where I think confusing comes in because then you have a bunch of people that say, no, don't do that. Don't use that. Don't use this. You know, I have the right answer. And then someone else comes in and says, no, that's garbage. You don't want to use that. Or, you, you know, you're using Ubuntu. That's not really Linux. You need to be using this distribution. That's, you know, and so on and so forth. And you start kind of getting those community arguments. And I think that that's where this becomes an issue. Like, again, in my case, when I found Ubuntu, I literally thought that was Linux. I thought, oh, wow, okay, so this is Linux. Cool, you know, I've got it. And it's just, and, and then when I found out, you know, through reading all these 
through all these different forms, I was like, holy cow, there's all these other distributions and desktop environments. And for me, it was great. I, I wish I had one of those like men in black flash sticks so I could kind of <laughs> temporarily, uh, you know, wipe my memory. I'd love to go back through that uh, initial, you know, uh, going through all those distros again and going through all those desktop environments. It was so much fun. And um, eventually, you know, you find what your workflow is well suited to. And you find that distro, you find that desktop environment, and I think you settle down. If if you're a techie, like kind of we are, you know, um, but for a basic user, like you were saying, Tony, if you're going to set somebody up, they're probably not going to go distro hopping. They're probably not concerned about fragmentation. They're probably going to take what you put on their computer, and they're just going to use the pants off it. And as long as nothing breaks, they'll be happy. And if, they, if it does break, they're going to come and ask you anyway. <laughs> right. Set them up with XFCE or set them up with Mate, something that looks very similar to, you know, old school XP and yep. just let them run with it. Absolutely. And you mentioned the forums and I do want to say that the, um, the, the forums elitism that you used to see is nowhere near as bad as it was. Yes, but still, if you... If you start searching for a distro and you end up on the forum of a specific distro, then the people giving advice there will most likely be biased toward that distro. Right. Oh, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. I still say Mint's the best. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to install Linux to anyone's computer, I think I would install Mint XFCE with the Papyrus icons, and that would be perfect. Yeah. If they have a more powerful computer, maybe even uh, Cinnamon. Well, so what do you guys think about people that um, they do very little? They'll take a, a distro, they'll theme it, wallpaper it, because this is a common complaint on the forums as well, right? And they respin it, throw it into an ISO and throw it out there. I mean, and then, you know, people get to arguing, is that a distro? Is that, do we really need that? Do we? And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I see it all as kind of like a big, like a developer art gallery, you know, and we get to kind of walk down it and take a look at everybody's different vision of what, you know, they think is, um, whether it just be aesthetic or functionally the way they want to use a computer. And hey, just along the way, you might find something that works for you. Yeah, it's probably a bit before your time, Josh, but Suze actually used to have the ability that they used to be able to go onto a, a web page and you used to be able to create your own ISO. Oh, yeah. Uh, put all the stuff you wanted in it and then spin an ISO up oh. uh, and load that onto your PC. So you could actually, there was actually a uh, you know, way of doing that that was one of the major players in Linux actually create. Obviously, it was, ba it was based on Suze. But you could you could spin it up and and put exactly what you wanted in it and take out the stuff you didn't want, and and then spin up your own ISO. Oh, that's kind of neat. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. That would have been neat to play with. But is you know Hannah Montana Linux its own distro? I mean, basically, it's just theming. Probably probably not. But 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 it's a bit of fun, isn't it? It's part. It's another. It's another part of the community. I'm actually willing to say that if, you know, they're willing to, you know, maintain those changes that they made when, when there's a kernel change, when a new version of Ubuntu comes out, if that's what it's based on, and they provide a, a, a way to download it after they've made all the changes based on the new stuff that comes out, then yeah, that, that would be a distro. 
they are distributing a version of Linux. And thanks for bringing that one up, Joe. Hannah Montana, absolutely. That that distro has to come up. (laughs) (laughs) Or you don't have a fragmentation conversation. (laughs) Right, right. I have an interesting take on maybe not what is always in the distro, but maybe what is definitely a distro. So I would say if it uses its own repository, not for everything necessarily, but some of the stuff, it is a distro. For example, uh, Endeavor OS and the Linux Mint and Pop OS are all what I like to call overlay distros. So they take the existing repos of Ubuntu and Arch, and they layer their own repositories on top of that. So even if they have some small repo for their customization or some themes, and they maintain those packages in their own distro, I would say they are pretty much a distro. I'd agree. And you guys remember that article from, uh, it wasn't so far back, where it was argued that Linux Mint ought to not exist any longer, that they should just basically be a cinnamon team, because it's basically Ubuntu with cinnamon slapped on top. Oh, I disagree with that. Oh, so yeah, I think a lot of people did. Now, now, now you completely disagree with that because they are doing their own packaging and yeah. they've really kind of split split from Ubuntu, especially when it comes to things like snaps. Right. But um, there was a time where it seemed like Linux Mint was just Ubuntu cinnamon. And I could see where some people would get that appre- impression, but that's no longer the case. In the early days of Linux Mint, it was a way uh, Ubuntu wouldn't include a lot of the proprietary codecs. And there was a community um, thing called Medibuntu where you could you could uh, download that and that would enable the proprietary codecs a- after the fact. But you needed to be a little bit techie to get all that to to work. Whereas Linux Mint, when they when they span their original uh distro out one of the things was it was sold on the fact that all those were included there was there was an iso for areas of the world where if you if you had those um codecs on your machine you were breaking the law so they did spin two isos one with the codecs and one without it but you could you know for the general user that just downloaded the the full ISO with all the codecs installed, you had a, a pretty good working system out of the box without having to do all that faff with Medibuntu and all that. Yeah. I, I vaguely, vaguely, because it was so long ago, remember having to, after a new install, go in and manually install all the codecs yeah. to get all the videos working and everything. Oh, that was forever ago. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, Medibuntu made that easier on Ubuntu, but it was still a faff. <laughs> and there was still one or two things that weren't included in that that you had to go and find separately. And now, um, you know, generally, you know, it, if something works on a new distribution and it works really well and it becomes popular, other people are going to see that and they're either going to take that code and get it to work on another distribution or they're going to see that effect and then recreate it from scratch. So saying that that, that fragmentation there of the code itself, that's also not really a concern because if it works, it's going to make it into everything else. Right. Tony, you mentioned that there was a time when Linux Mint was basically just Ubuntu with Cinnamon. But was it back when Cinnamon was just layered upon, on top of GNOME, or was it already a fork? 
No, Linux Mint came out before um, Ubuntu transitioned to Unity. So Linux Mint originally was using GNOME 2, the same as Ubuntu was. But the same could be said about PopOS, which is also really close to Ubuntu right now, because they are just using extensions on top of GNOME, which was, I think it was the same thing with Cinema when it started out. Yeah, but Linux Mint was around for three or four years before Cinnamon, maybe even a little bit longer, before Cinnamon and Mate came out. So it was only after uh, Unity uh, became the default desktop in Ubuntu that uh, Linux Mint moved over to Cinnamon as the main uh, desktop release and and then Mate came along and they, and they included a Mate release. But if there are enough people who like the defaults of a distro, then I think it justifies the existence of the distro. Yeah. I don't even think you have to justify the existence of a distro. It's open source. I agree. You know, you you just, if you want to do it and you have the technical prowess and know-how, then why not? That's what we're here for. And if if you're prepared to create the infrastructure to share that ISO and to, like Joe said, be able to run the updates and, you know, release new ISOs when, when things get updated, then, you know, good on you. Yeah. So if it's just a wallpaper change and you want to spend all the time and money to run a server to put that out there, then, hey, why not? <laughs> I want to go back a bit to the package managers, which uh, I think Tony said that they are what defines uh, an independent distro, usually, because uh, there are some independent distros like uh, PC Linux OS or Chaos that use existing package managers. But uh, I would say the number of package managers is, is also just about right. So my overall take on uh, fragmentation is that choice is good, but you don't have to have too many options or too few of them. Like I said, as, as far as the independent system, uh, as far as independent distros go, I think the amount of choice is just right. Yeah, and when it comes to package managers, I really don't think we need any more. I kind of understand if people decide to build another one, but it's going to be really difficult to change anything in the package manager market the way it is now. Yes, but uh, the fragmentation of of, uh, distros and package managers usually comes down to a philosophy. For example, uh, when I started using Void, I was a bit surprised when I learned that they're using their own package manager, which is uh, XZPS. Then I started using it, and it turned out to be even faster than Pac-Man. So for a while, I really enjoyed it, uh, especially how quick the updates were. So in case of XZPS, I can see totally being justified, because someone wanted to build something that they thought could be better for their use case as this, and it managed to stick around for, I think, in more than 10 years now. Yeah. But uh, you will probably see advancements in things like Flatpak and, and, and Snap. And that, as computers are getting better, that might take over because they do require a bit more resources, but they are more universally, you know, compatible. Yeah, I think, I think the days of the pack... I don't think the days of the package manager are numbered, but I think, like you say, Joe, I think uh, containerization is going to be the way forward in the future. I think you got that right, Tony. I heard or read an opinion about this that said uh, it would be a good thing to separate uh, system packages from packages that the user installed on top of that. And having different, because I think Snap and Flatpak still count as package managers, but having two different package managers for the system and the user applications could be a good thing. 
Also, we mentioned how SteamOS was going to be available for anyone to download a few weeks ago. But on top of that, it's going to be an immutable system. So the root file system is going to be read-only, but you can still install Flatpaks on top of that, which is essentially how installing anything on Android works. Yeah. And again, they're going to give people choice in that regard too, because you can switch on developer mode and then you can go on and it becomes a read-write file system. So as usual, the Linux community comes through. And and I had that in the notes, actually, that one of the arguments, uh, again, uh, with fragmentation has been uh, some of these big proprietary software companies not releasing their product on Linux because of you know, fragmentation and having to build for all these different distributions. But with universal package formats, now that can't even be argued. Snap, Flatpak, App Image, App Image, especially. Can you name a fourth one? Because I think what's really lucky is that compared to having more than a dozen mainline package managers in distros, we pretty much only have these three universal package managers. Well, there's some quasi ones like. Uh... Docker, Docker images, um, what, um, C-Space, things like that. But as far as long, long-term long support distros go, uh, containerization using snaps, flat packs, and app image and all that, it does make it easier for the, for the uh, companies that are creating enterprise Linux to offer longer support for distros. For in the server in the server space because they don't have they, they they can keep the software up to date using the containerization, but support support security on a stable system that they don't have to keep reinstalling. It's the same thing that, for example, Elementary OS is doing on the desktop for personal use. Because when the first time I heard that they're going to be transitioning to using all flatpacks, I was a bit skeptical about that, but. If this turns out to be the way that everything is going forward in the future, then they probably made the wise decision. The only problem still is that they really need to have a lot more packages in elementary. Yousef, uh, Yousef Yuda wants to mention from the uh, live stream, Blackmagic Design released DaVinci Resolve as .run file. A .run file runs on every distro. Yeah. So there's another one. Hmm. There you go. I should look into that. But yeah, but also the reason you don't want to have too many of these package managers is because even though the number of distros and package managers is increasing linearly, with that, the number of possible combinations of these things increase exponentially. So if you have 10 base distros and you have 10 desktop environments, that's 100 possible combinations. And this is why it's really hard for a platform to exist on Linux. Because, like I said, if someone wants to develop an application for Mac or Android, they can use the existing toolkit that uh, Google and Apple provide for it. But if you, there's actually a really good video about this uh, on the also on the Linux experiment, because uh, if you want to develop a Linux application, you have to choose a toolkit, you have to choose a method of distribution. So even with those, there's so even with the number of those uh, increasing, the number of possible choices uh, expand exponentially. I think that um, it's going to be very difficult for someone, I think, to break into the universal packaging space. It just seems like that is, it's taking some very large companies a lot of resources to try to get this right. And let's face it, they're still not right. 
There's still issues with snaps. There's still issues with flat packs. So I don't think this is going to be a case of where we end up with, a, you know, a ton of different options in this space. I think it's going to be a few of them and I think they're going to get developed and pushed out. And, uh, you know, I don't know that there's ever going to be a quote unquote winner of the bunch, but, um, yeah, I, I just don't think that it's going to become as fragmented, as fragmented as package managers have become. Probably my favorite of the three, so Snap, Flatpak, and AppImage, right now is AppImage because uh, I think it was LibreWolf, the browser that I that I tried using via Flatpak, and then I tried using it via AppImage, and I was surprised to see that the AppImage was actually way smaller than the overall space the packages pulled by Flatpak occupy. So I think this is due to AppImages not being containerized. But even though they are not containerized, they are more separated from the system because they are just a standalone file. Of course, they put uh, some of their config files in your home folder, but but they seem to be more integrated into the system and it's also smaller. So maybe considering a method that is universal but not as containerized as Snap or Fredback would also be a good idea. But uh, AppImage is like a centralized way of management. There is a package called, I think, AppImage Manager, and there are also websites where they are trying to distribute uh, app images in the same place, but it's not official. So what we need is a mainstream uh, app store for app images. You're thinking like a flat hub for app images. Yeah, so basically we need a flat hub for app images where developers of certain applications and programs would uh, want to distribute their own applications as app images. Because right now a lot of applications like uh, Microsoft Teams or Discord only have unofficial third-party app images. And it would be nice to have official ones that uh, could even auto-update themselves. Like for example how Snaps or uh, Flatpaks have a centralized way of updating. If AppImages had that, I think they would prefer to use them over the other two. Uh, it's a little more difficult to get app images to integrate into the system well. So that requires a little more uh, tinkering. Uh, say uh, flat packs, you know, they especially here, again, to use uh, Mint and Cinnamon as an example. I think it's probably the same across all three of the desktop environments. But when you download a flat pack, it pulls in your theme and then the rest of the flat packs can use that theme so it makes it integrate nicely and it pulls it into the menu system and all that which you don't get with uh app images you know that you mentioned it i also tried uh, to use the app image of only office after using the flat pack but the app images wouldn't start on my system and when i tried to run it in the terminal it just uh, it gave me an error that said saying that it was missing some library so yeah i see also, if, uh, for example, the version of GTK or Qt is different on your system than what the, the app image is expecting, it will also be a problem. And I guess um, back to the overall, I guess another major problem could be that um, people don't always find the correct distro for them because there is so much choice on their first try. And a new person transitioning to Linux from Windows, this could be a major problem. They installed Linux and it didn't work for them, so they immediately go back to Windows. Yep, that could be a real concern for sure. I think that happened when I first got into Linux more and more. I, I was lucky when I got into Linux. I'm not a gamer. So the fact that uh, gaming was a no-no on Linux 14 years ago wasn't an issue to me but uh, to a lot of people I know there was a lot of people who got into or tried Linux you know around the end the um, 2000 uh, 
2007, 6, 7, when Ubuntu started to become popular. But because they couldn't do uh, gaming on it, they either scrapped it altogether or were, you know, kept their Windows machine going because they couldn't do the games on Linux. Uh, So really, at that time, Linux for them was just a little toy that they had in the corner. Uh, but ne- now that's not as big an issue as it used to be. Yeah. You could argue that uh, dual booting would also be a good solution to that, but I guess a lot of people just wouldn't like the idea of having multiple operating systems and increasing hassle to keep them maintained. Yeah, the problem for me with that was constantly having to swap over. When I, when I originally started dual booting, uh, if it was a problem with the driver for a printer or stuff like that and I wanted to print something off, I'd have to go out of Linux and into Windows to do the printing and all that. So it was such a faff, but nowadays uh, it's not a bigger. And for a long time, Windows made it extremely difficult to dual boot for any period of time because they would go in and brick your grub and then you'd fix it and then they'd go in and do an update and brick your grub. It wasn't so much, it wasn't a big issue with Windows XP. I think that came later. No, seven, eight. I never dual booted with seven and eight. So uh, with Windows XP, that wasn't so much of an issue. It's even happened once or twice with uh, 10. Yeah. But did XP support UEFI or just legacy? Legacy. I don't think there was a UEFI boot for XP. No, no. So it would have to replace the Windows bootloader. Yeah, whenever you dual booted, you were using the Grub bootloader bootloader to to pick. Yes, but in in case of legacy booting, it's not really a surprise that the operating systems would argue about being in control of of the bootloader. Mm. But the thing about Windows 10 is that people now still seem to complain about Windows breaking the Grub on UEFI. Because it doesn't like to be, uh, or to share space, it likes to think that it's the only OS. And even to this day, you can't you can't install Windows as a dual boot after you've installed Linux. You've still got to have Windows on the system first before you install Linux. Why? Because it will destroy your bootload. It writes its own bootloader. Well, it, it, it basically it'll wipe out anything that's on the disk. But maybe that's the reason it bricks grub after the, on an update because it doesn't necessarily brick grub either. What it does is it, uh, it it forces the motherboard to point to the um, um, bootloader for Windows as opposed to the grub bootloader. Yes, but I don't think that this is what people mean when they say it's breaking their grub because you can easily revert that in the BIOS as well. Well, you can easily revert that. I can easily reverse that. But the general user couldn't. (laughs) Let me tell you, when I got my first Grub Rescue screen, that was a very interesting experience, (laughs) and it was not a happy one. There there are some devices that I've had where using Grub Rescue was an active part of the initial setup process. (laughs) Oh dear! I managed to go to not using Grub at all on my system. I just I, j- I just went and set up the uh, separate uh, refined configuration files, and they are literally just two lines of of a uh, config file compared to having the uh, Grub file that's many lines long. Oh no! 
I think rap might be overly complicated. And Orbury, now you've given us bootloader. <laughs> We've got bootloader fragmentation. Yeah, that's like <laughs> saying X11 is overly complicated. Yes, but the reason I'm not using VLAN on my desktop is, is NVIDIA. Mm-hmm. Also, XFC doesn't... I think XFC, have, the XFC devs have uh, updated a lot of their applications to work well with VLAN. The only thing that doesn't work with VLAN yet is uh, the session itself. So if XFC at one point came out with a version, with an update that made it usable on Wayland, I think I would be willing to switch. Yousef had a couple other things to add. Uh, Well, when I was in Windows, I started to use open source software as a replacement. Almost with everything I do, I installed Linux distros on VM. So yeah, I guess that is a good place for a lot of uh, Windows users to get comfortable with Linux. And then he also said, I often broke my system in the beginning, but I know now how to fix them. That's it. Well, I will say that when I first started, there was a whole lot more nuke and pave than there is now. <laughs> now I'm much more willing to fix than I am to just kill it all and start from the beginning when I mess it up. I still like nuke and pave. <laughs> hey, nuke and paves have their place, but now it's not one of my, you know, fix this computer. Go to. Yeah. Was it possible to update from mint 19 to 20 without uh, reinstalling? Uh, not at first. I think it took them a while to get the um, uh, actual update process working. But if you wanted to be an early adopter from 19 to 20, you actually had to do a full reinstall. Do you think it would be easier for the transition from 20 to 21 to not have to do a complete reinstall? If Leo were here, he would tell you that it's always better to do a nuke and pave than, than an update because updates come with risks. Yes, but if, I, for example, I wanted to convince a relative or my grandma or someone to use Mint and I didn't really want to worry about uh, having to reinstall it, for example, seven months from now. When you're putting um, an operating system on someone else's computer, they're going to tell you that every piece of data that they have is absolutely important and cannot be gotten rid of. And so your only solution is to update as opposed to new and pave. Or you can just back up the home folder and then new compact. Uh, but but with someone that like that, I would suggest uh, if they're on, say they're on the LMD 20, Linux Mint 20, that is going to last for five years. So you've got at least five years between install and uh, when you have to do an update, an up- upgrade. So you could, in theory, skip every every other Mint release and just go from 20 to 22. Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's what I do on my media PC up front because it doesn't have any customization done in the config files or anything else. And if it blows itself up, I really don't care. It, You know, it's a matter of minutes to get it back up and running. So, um, yeah, there's no sensitive information on that thing. So I just keep upgrading it, and so far it's been fine. Now, I will say that last time I nuked and pave, I talked about it on the show, and I did. I, I lost some configuration. I lost a lot of configuration because I didn't have it backed up, and it was a rather sudden needing to nuke and pave because I didn't know what the exact issue was, and I needed to be logged back into work, and so it was quicker for me to do a full reinstall right then instead of trying to save my distro. But if I have to do a nuke and pave. I'm not losing any data because I don't keep any data on the hard drive where my operating system is. And I do that on all my machines. The most I might lose is something in downloads and that's it. 
I don't know about you guys. Mm-hmm. I just sim linked my downloads folder to my other drive, so even that wouldn't be an issue. I do that a lot too. Yeah, I keep stuff on the PC on the on the hard drive, but it's usually backed up to my two backup drives as well, so I can always recover it if I have to nuke and pave. I think I lost my FS tab and um, my cron tab. So you're just keeping everything externally. Yeah, yeah, nothing stays. Well, I have a 500 gig drive, but the only thing on there is going to be applications and I, I, I do back up my uh, configurations um, under my home and that's essentially it. And if I have an extremely small hard drive, I will uh, sim link the downloads to an external folder on an external drive, which is what I do with a lot of my tablets. I was going to say, we're starting to talk about, stuff that's totally uh, irrelevant to the topic so i think we've probably exhausted it <laughs> yeah 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 it, it's about that time anyway but no but that's good for distro hopping so if you do want to try out all of this fragmentation that we're talking about all these different operating systems that's a good way to do it save your information and then just transfer it into the new one so there i i made it fit tony yeah (laughs) (laughs) and um and do we have anything we want to add i think this has been going on about the 30 minutes it's supposed to everybody that's listening let us know what you think of this different style of innards that's much more free-flowing and less formulaic than what we've used in the past maybe we'll use this more i think it'll be really topic dependent And unless anybody got any last-minute one-offs that they want to put in here, I'm ready to transition to vibrations from the ether. Also, Joe, by the way, I use whatever is good for my use case. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's that's all of us. Which happens to be Arch. Also, I think (laughs) at this point I'm most familiar with Arch because whenever I... I figured you were just going to say, I use Arch. No, I wouldn't say that just blatantly. <laughs> I think I'm just also more most familiar with Arch. It might be Stockholm Syndrome, I'm not sure. But when I tried to install a graphical environment on Fedora, I was surprised to learn that if I go to systemctl enable GDM, it doesn't do anything. There's a separate command. You have to go systemctl set default graphical target. It's just different, but I'm not sure why. There must be a reason behind it. But since I got familiar with how to do things on Arch, I might as well just stick with it. Cool. Okay, and now we are going to hard transition to vibrations from the ether. All right. Um, I did get one uh, communications. Our, our level of communications to um, the... Mintcast email seems to have gone down a little bit. So please send us more emails and we will have them on the show. Um, I got one from Joshua Mason. I'm a Tilts listener and have heard you talk about the Dell Venue tablets. Is there a place where you have consolidated the information on which tablets work with Linux and how you got them to do so? Also, I know you have put some on eBay and was wondering if you have any current listings there. Thank you for your help. Now, I responded, um, no, I, I don't have anything consolidated, but I do did talk about it a lot on one of the recent Mintcasts. 
Basically, Dell tablets are the best way to go right now when it comes to making Windows tablets run Linux with little to no need for modification. The Dell Venue 117130 for the lowest, low-ish cost, the Dell Latitude 5290 for the high cost, and the 5285 for something in the middle. Um, Asus transformers do require some extra work, but anymore, they're really too slow to be useful. You can get Surface Pros to run Linux, but it requires custom kernels and a bit more maintenance. And I am currently not selling anything on eBay, but I will let you know if that changes. And then I know, Norbert, you also have um, information about running Linux on tablets. Yes, but uh, the Surface tablets are a bit different because surprisingly you just have to go into the UEFI settings and set the USB as the first in the boot order. And from there on, you can just install and distro like you would on a regular system. You still have to disable the secure boot as well, which I'm also surprised Microsoft just lets you do by default. You don't have to do anything tinkering, any modifying, any modifications within the bootloader whatsoever. Okay. And you do need the custom kernel in order to be able to add in, add back in a lot of the functionality that you lose from Windows. But the only thing that really I had problem with with the regular kernel was Wi-Fi because sometimes it was just drop the connection and I would have to reboot the system, both on Fedora and Arch, which are the two that I tried. But after moving to the Surface kernel, which is also which is also very well maintained, so it's a recent version, only a, maybe a couple of point releases behind the, the mainline Fedora kernel, uh, the Wi-Fi problems, problems went away. Uh, I read about some issues that were presented a couple of years ago with the sus- Surface tablets not being able to wake up from suspension, but I had no problem with that in either the regular or the Surface kernel. So if anyone wants to go get a first Surface, for Linux. The only thing that is not really solvable, at least on my older one, which is the Surface Pro 3, is battery life. Uh, I suspect there are just some specific uh, battery power management thing that Windows can do because it's developed by Microsoft and that you cannot do on Linux, which is specific to the service surfaces. But I still do get like, uh, it. yeah, it's, uh, it's also a second hand tablet, but I do get like three hours of uh, watching a movie. Hmm. Or it's which is which is decent. It's good. I wouldn't expect it to last for like ten for to last for like ten hours, but maybe with something like the GamePad, uh, so ARM-based processors on Linux, if they are optimized enough, there could be the solution and, and last as much as, for example, um, a laptop would like ten to twelve hours. But for now, I'm happy with this one, especially since. Because of the pandemic, I don't uh, travel much, so I just use it to for watching movies uh, at home, where I can just charge it whenever. Okay, well, and that was the only thing for um, the vibrations from the ether section. And so now we will move on to check this out. And the first item in check this out is session messenger. And who, who put that in? Uh, I put that one in there too. So, um, I was looking around, uh, at alternative, uh, messengers and ran across this one. It's a FOSS fork of signal messenger, and it requires no personal information utilizes end to end encryption and goes through an onion routing network. 
Uh, it's cross-platform, available on Windows, Mac, and Linux as an app image, and on iPhone and Android, either through the Play Store or you can sideload it as a .apk. So uh, I had my daughter actually put this on her phone, and we've been giving it a little uh, little try. And, um, you know, there's a, a little bit of trade-off with convenience because you can't just go into your contacts. It doesn't use phone numbers, so you can't just go in there and start messaging people. Uh, you either have to use a, a fairly long string of uh, uh, a link or you have to use a QR code and scan that to get a conversation started with someone to basically sync up your uh, contact. But once you've got the conversation started, then it's really not unlike any other messenger. So uh, it's been fun so far, and uh, I'm going to leave it on here for a little bit and give it a play and see how it goes. Cool. Let us know. Okay, and here we have the This Is Not Going Well Linux Gaming Challenge Part 2 from Linus Tech Tips. And this is where they're trying to um, install Linux and use it for gaming and streaming. They want to live stream their gaming session on Linux. And I found this video very interesting because, well, you know, Linus is trying to do it without any actual help. And yeah, that's good for him. But then the other guy, what was his name? I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, had some interesting issues with audio that we've actually seen on this show with the, uh, um, I think it's the baud rate where, um, the baud rate for the system doesn't match for the XLR device that he's using. I think one is, um, 4,100 and one's like 4,400 and it causes the, your voice to sound very deep unless you do a, um, restart on your audio device. And I think both Leo and Bo had that problem on the show where all of a sudden their voice was extremely deep and they had to go in and adjust the configuration so that, that it was working correctly. Oh, and the guy's name was Luke. Thank you. It, it was just interesting that, you know, the video played and it got to that part and it's like, I know that problem. I know how to fix that. And I even posted on, um, the, um, YouTube, uh, page, you know, where they were doing this. Hey, come talk to us at Midcast. We, we, we know this problem. We're quite willing to, you know, work through some of these things with you. And Luke is actually on mint, which is also really cool. But I think they deleted it because I put the Mintcast link in there. I think YouTube hides those automatically and flags it as spam. If you put a link in it, uh, I think that's an issue specific to Power pulse audio. Yeah. So it might not be present on Pipeware, which is another reason for this was to edit Pipeware. Yeah. And, you know, um, in the first one, Linus had a lot of issues with um, Pop OS audio uh, and audio. Well, yeah, and audio. And they had some issues getting OBS to properly select um, <clears throat> Windows. But um, I, I found that. You can get it to select it the first time, but then if you leave and come back, it won't necessarily select the correct window and you have to go in and manually tell it again. But that's the only thing I've seen there when it comes to window selection. And sometimes it's easier just to, you know, share the whole screen. Okay, and then you had posted something about hot edges and custom hot corners extended? 
Yeah, uh, once again, I have brought a couple of uh, GNOME extensions that I tried uh, on the desktop, and these are specifically for people who want to use GNOME with a regular mouse, but they are not comfortable with the uh, with the regular GNOME workflow with a mouse. So Hot Edges uh, allows you to have a hot edge, for example, on the bottom of your screen. So you, if you wanted to open an application with a mouse, you wouldn't have to drag your mouse to the upper left corner, then back down to the dash where your icons are. But with this extension, I just I can just pull my cursor back to the bottom edge of the screen, and it would activate overview mode, and uh, then my cursor would be right next to the dash by default, so I can just select an icon. And it also appears to be pressure sensitive. So I'm just trying to select some text in a window on the bottom of the screen. Even if I push the cursor right next to the edge, it wouldn't activate. I have to apply some accelerations of force with the cursor for it to open, uh, which is really nice. And another similar extension is uh, Custom Hot Corners Extended, with which you can set uh, custom actions for all of the four uh, corners of the screen. So for example, if I didn't want to have the entire bottom edge to act as a hot edge, I could just set a hot corner, for example, to the bottom left or bottom right corners and activate overviews from there. But it goes beyond that. It has actually quite a lot of uh, options you can set. For example, right now I have set the bottom left corner to go to the to the previous workspace and the bottom right corner to go to the next workspace. So if I wanted to do something on the screen with the mouse real quick, I wouldn't have to switch over to the keyboard and then and then press Ctrl, Alt, Left and Right to be able to switch workspaces. I can just do it with the mouse movement. So if you want to use them with the mouse, I would uh, encourage you to check out either one of or both of these. Thank you for coming to my TED talk about uh, GNOME not being usable on the desktop with a mouse. Okay, and um, announcements. Our next episode, 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, December 12th. And you can get that converted to your time zone using the link in the show notes. And our next live stream will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on December December 4th. And I will get that uh, set up for a link here shortly. Please, And as this part of the announcement's new, please join us on Discord if you would like to be a host on Mintcast. We need to... Uh, add another body. I'm not trying to add like five more or anything, but I want to get one more in there so that way we at least have um, five total and four regulars and preferably somebody that has a bit more experience with um, Linux, if you can. Also, newbie perspective is nice too, so don't worry about that. Just we'd like another host. And you can get that uh, live stream converted to your time zone in the uh, show notes as well. And on to Tony's final wrap-up. Okay. Um, I'm Joe, and if you like the sound of my voice, you can catch me on a couple of the other shows, the Linux Link Tech Show. That's tllts.org. You can find me on Linux Lugcast. That's linuxlugcast.com. You can track me down on MeWe, or you can send me an email, jb at midcast.org. And I do try to respond to every email. And you can buy me a coffee using my Kofi link in the show notes. Tony? Yeah, you can get me on Hacker Public Radio. I'm host ID 338. Uh, I'm on Twitter at TonyH1212. Uh, 
I'm still got a uh, mintcast.org uh, email. I'm th at mintcast.org. You can get me at distrohoppersdigest at gmail.com. And if you want to go and watch any of my recent restorations, just pick the, a little short video of some of the recent restorations I've done. You can go to my YouTube channel, which is Tony Hughes-Diecast Restos. Norbert? You can send me an email at norbert at mintcast.org. The other, other Josh. Yeah, you can get me at jt at mintcast.org, Josh Thacker on Discord, and at metal underscore foss on Twitter. And Nishant wasn't able to be with us this week, and you can catch him at nishant at mintcast.org, Rikon Ghost on Instagram, Rikon Ghost at GitHub, ghost.rikon on Discord, and maverick00783 at Steam. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Josh Lowe for his work on the web stu- website, Hobstar for our logo, Init RD for the animated Discord logo, and Londoner for our time sync. Bitemart hosting for hosting Mintcast.org and our Mumble server, Archive.org for hosting our audio files. The Linux Mint development team for the distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Clem. Thank you, Tony, for all the work you've done over the last three years. Very much, yes. Thank you very much. I will be really missing your voice. (laughs) This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mint. Hi guys, uh, it's Tony Hughes. I'm from the UK, on the west coast in Blackpool. Unlike a lot of you guys, I'm not an IT professional. Uh, I've spent most of my career in uh, health and social care. I'm a qualified nurse and social worker. But uh, I retired a few years back, uh, got into computing later in life, uh, and got into Linux in the mid-2000s through refurbishing old uh, computers to give away on FreeCycle. And that's, that was my introduction to Linux. Hey, folks. It's that time of year again. Time for the Hacker Public Radio 24 Hours New Year's Eve show. We encourage everyone to join us for stimulating conversation and maybe send a Happy New Year's greeting to the HBR community. We plan on starting at 10 a.m. UTC, December 31st, also known as 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we will keep the recording going until 12 a.m. UTC, January 1st, also known as 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, unless people are still on and talking. To join us, all you have to do is install Mumble. It is available on all platforms, including iOS and Android. Then, just create a nick and go to hackerpublicradio.org for the server details. Connect, join the Hacker Public Radio room, and you're there. If you can't join us in Mumble, but would like to hear the show live, we will have a stream up so you can listen. 
you can go to hackerpublicradio.org for the server details of the stream. So come on and join us. It's always a good time.